Welcome to Bookaholics, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking's podcast series dedicated to books. In this series, we introduce you to some recent and relevant books around books and obviously classic books that we just can't stop talking and teaching about. My name is Christophe van Houten, and in this episode of Bookaholics, it is my great pleasure to be joined by Benedict Beckelt to talk about his latest book, Western Self-Contempt, Oikophobia in the Decline of Civilizations, published by Cornell University Press. Hello, Benedict, and welcome. Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Now, as people familiar with Bookaholics know by now, we always give the first word to the author. As you wrote the book, who better than you to tell us what it is about and what you hope to achieve with it? So please. Yes, so the um, book is about the central concept of orcophobia, which you mentioned in the title, um, which uh, is uh, neologism more or less. It was coined by uh, the late Sir Roger Scruton about 20, 25 years ago uh, as the opposite extreme of xenophobia. So orcophobia from the Greek oikos, uh, meaning home or house, uh, refers to... uh, cultural self-hatred, a hatred of one's own or contempt of one's own civilization, of one's own society uh, on a cultural level. Uh, And so it's about, uh, the book is about why this happens. Now, most of us probably uh, in the Western world, both in Europe and in North America, we're familiar with the phenomenon, we've seen it in action, Um, but um, most people don't have a very clear idea of why we are in such a historical phase um, where this sort of thing happens. Uh, because this kind of cultural self-hatred doesn't always happen. It hasn't been the case in every era. And so my book tries to explain why it happens, the circumstances, socio-historical and philosophical reasons uh, behind uh, cultural self-hatred. And um, and so, yeah, that's, that's basically what the book is about. Um, as for your um, question, what I hope to achieve with it, uh, to be perfectly honest, I probably uh, <laughs> will maybe talk a little bit about... Um, my general attitude uh, toward the society in which we live, but I have a rather um, pessimistic, one might say, um, attitude about the things I talk about. And so I don't really think, even if I wanted to achieve something, I don't really think I can achieve anything with it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, and uh, first of all, probably because most of most people won't even know about the book. Of course, this this uh, podcast might help a bit. Um, but, um, we do our best. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's hope. Um, but um, I write. I wrote it mainly just because I felt I had to. Uh, I'm, and I'm, I think a lot of not just philosophers and writers, just creative people in general, I think will understand what I mean when I say that you do something because you have to. You you engage in your craft because because you have to. It's my calling in life. So I just wrote it because these ideas came to me, sort of formed themselves in my mind, and so I had to had to sit down and, and write them out. Uh, and that's really the only reason I wrote them. Of course, if down the line some people do read it and are inspired by it or they gain something from it, of course, I'll be very happy uh, if that happens. Okay. Uh, but really, um, uh, I just wrote it because I had to. No great expectations. Exactly. So, okay. Well, I read the book, so at least one person read it. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> now, in, in order to make uh, sure that all listeners perfectly understand what we are talking about, you, you already said a little bit about the concept of oikophobia, but could you say uh, something uh, more about it? You also mentioned that it doesn't always occur, so there must be a historical aspect in your talk as well. So um, what can you say a bit more for the so, so that the listener can understand specifically more what we are talking about? Yes, yeah, so it uh, it's something that happens during particular phases in history. Orcophobia is not a constant. Unlike xenophobia, hmm. 
which is uh, the polar opposite of ochrophobia, as I mentioned. Xenophobia, you can always, in every era, uh, I think in every society, you can always find people who are xenophobic, sometimes more, sometimes fewer, uh, but you will always find some people who, who dislike foreigners, who, uh, who hate other civilizations, and so on. Uh, oikophobia is something that is a bit more cyclical. Now, o- xenophobia can also happen as a reaction toward oikophobia, so o- xenophobia is also not always the same. It does vary in degree and intensity and so on. Uh, but oikophobia is something much more cyclical, so it generally happens uh, in a society, and a, and a big part of the book is that I go back to uh, ancient times, uh, all the way back to ancient Greece, and then also uh, Rome as well, uh, and look at the circumstances uh, under which oikophobia tends to occur. And I do that because if we see how it happened in ancient times, that will help us understand how it's happening right now. Um, and um, so basically, just to... Um, Obviously, I spend many pages on this, but uh, briefly, a society that has grown uh, prosperous and safe, secure, uh, that has time for leisure, um, for uh, science, uh, for uh, various um, intellectual studies, um, that's a society that will be prone to ochrophobia because a society that has those, uh, that is enjoying those uh, advantages will become introspective. Mm-hmm. And so it will start to uh, look at itself and start to criticize itself. And self-critique in and of itself is not a bad thing, of course. But human beings being human beings, we have a tendency of taking everything to an extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the self-critique will uh, lead to orcophobia, where you don't just have reason, reasonable measured critique of your own of your own civilization, but you really start to to despise it. Um, And so that happens when a civilization has matured and we see. So that's why I say it's cyclical, because then at the beginning of the next civilization, there is no ochophobia. Um, And so it it reappears cyclically in history. So two things I'd like to remark here. First of all, um, you already mentioned it, that you put it against uh, xenophobia. And in your book, I really liked the the remark you put there as, as you use the example of the balance of the virtue balance that Aristotle wrote in the Nicomachean Ethics, and that you say that virtues are the middle ground between two extremes, and you use oikophobia and xenophobia as the non-virtues extremes. So I really like that. So that would be a first comment, if you may be in in, in a second uh, comment on that as well. But then also, uh, this is not the first time that we that the people I talk to remind me of of one of of Ivan Ilyich's uh, wonderful. Um, ideas and that of the two watersheds. And so I, I think I, I find it here again in what you say. So you have a civilization that criticizes itself and that's the first watershed, but that's a good thing. But then comes the second watershed and that's when a good thing turns bad. So I, I think here the oikophobia is then the, 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 the self-critique is no longer critical, but is damaging. Is, do you think that's mm-hmm. a, a good remark here? Or? Yeah, uh, essentially, I, I would I would um, qualify it slightly, but I, mm-hmm. I basically agree. Um, but so as to your point about Aristotle, um, yeah. So let me start with the second point, uh, since that's freshest in my mind. Uh, so basically, the um, uh, self. Uh, if we look at it uh, in a general way, self critique is good uh, because it can help a civilization to grow and to uh, uh, and to learn from its mistakes, of course. Um, I think that's pretty obvious why self-critique uh, can be a very useful thing. Uh, and generally, um, self-contempt is a bad thing because it's purely destructive. Self-critique uh, t- attempts to be constructive. Mm-hmm. The one reason I said that I would qualify what you said a little bit is that since, um, as I try to establish in the book, ochophobia is something that happens cyclically, 
we see that self-critique does lead to self-contempt. And so self-critique taken in and of itself, uh, I would certainly say is a good thing. And that's something some other people who have read the book previously, they think that I want a society that where everyone is the same and nobody questions anything. Of course, that's not at all what I want. I'm just pointing out in a descriptive way. Uh, and that's another thing. A lot of people can't tell the difference between description and prescription, right? The fact that I describe a problem, right? It doesn't mean that I want to say that, oh, therefore, we should all be like a tribe where, where everybody thinks the same thing. Not at all. Um, simply describing the process by which self-critique does lead to self-contempt. Critique is good, but we also have to keep in mind the cyclical aspect of it, that it does tend to uh, to be taken too far. And so even though you see and you welcome self-critique, you also see clearly in history what the next step will be after that. Mm. Um, and yeah, so right. So now I just uh, so go. I forgot about the Aristotle uh, part. Um, so to uh, yes. Yeah, so as you said, uh, he says um, he talks about it's in it's in book two of the Nicomachean Ethics, uh, where he talks about how um, the uh, a virtue is the uh, the moderate middle ground between two extremes, and of course the whole the whole point about the middle ground is very important. Aristotle in other contexts as well, uh, when he talks about the middle class in a society, for example, uh, the the golden mean is is a big thing. Yeah. If self critique, you mentioned, we've just been talking about self critique. Now I think we can agree that self critique, by and large, in spite of the qualification I mentioned, self critique by and large is a good thing. Uh, but if you have too much self critique. Right. Then you become orcophobic. Mm. Um, and if you have too little self-critique, you might become xenophobic. Mm. Um, and so uh, and so self-critique would be a virtuous middle uh, between those two extremes. And similarly, self-promotion, too. Right. It's good to uh, to take care of your own civilization, to promote your own society. Um, but too much of that becomes xenophobic. Mm. And again, too little of that becomes uh, becomes orcophobic. Mm. And so uh, once again, I think uh, I think Aristotle is right. Uh, and I think division. <laughs> Aristotle is right, tends to be right about a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, thanks. So um, maybe a short follow-up question on that. Do you think there is any form of oikophobia that is acceptable? Or, or let me maybe say it somewhat differently. Can it be considered acceptable at times? Um, no, not really, uh, because I think oikophobia by its very nature is unreflective, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to self-critique. Um, okophobia is um, where one simply seeks to denigrate. Um, like I said before, I don't think it has a constructive purpose. Mm. One could, I suppose, say that if there is too much xenophobia in a society uh, at a particular point, okophobia could serve as a counterweight. Okay. Uh, and maybe in that sense, it could uh, one could see some use uh, use in it. Uh, similarly, if there's too much okophobia in a society, maybe some xenophobia would serve as a counterweight. Mm. Uh, but I still can't say that I think okophobia or xenophobia themselves uh, are good things. Uh, the Again, the self-critique that leads to orcophobia, that in itself, of course, can be very useful. Mm. Okay. Um, but on its but, own, you don't think it has any? Yeah. Okay. No, not really. I, I wouldn't think so. If it does, I'm not sure I would call it orcophobia. I guess I would have to see a case in history where this sort of self-denigration has a positive outcome, but I, I don't see one. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Now, uh, one more question uh, regarding ocophobia. Obviously, you wrote a book about it, so uh, it's good that we talk about it. Now, it, it seems uh, to be a highly elitarian issue, or better, an issue that is mainly present in, high, in the higher cultural echelons. The main protagonist of your book are the great names of philosophy and literature in Western history. Can you say something more about this seemingly elitarian character or aspect of ocophobia? 
Yes, yeah, so that's largely true, uh, indeed, um, that it is uh, an elitist or elitarian phenomenon. Uh, that's more true in the ancient world, though, than in the modern. Uh, and I talk a little bit, uh, talk a little bit in the book about the reasons for that. Um, so um, the fact that it's the elite, I, I mentioned before that you know, once a society is able to uh, establish a measure of leisure and science and and uh, self-study and so on, it becomes more self-critical and ultimately more acophobic. Um, it's it should be clear, right, that it's it's the elite that is able to begin with to engage in science and self-study and so on. And so for that reason alone, it tends to be an elitist or elitarian uh, phenomenon. Um, now, the reason why that changes a little bit over time, it's still uh, to a considerable extent an elitarian phenomenon today, but the, but it has become more diffuse. And the reason for that is that uh, the more democracy, the more egalitarianism um, we find in a society, the more ochophobia we tend to find there. And that's, by the way, why we see it first in ancient Greece, because ancient Greece has the first uh, democracy uh, in the Western world, uh, not necessarily what we would call democracy today, but but certainly by uh, an ancient standard, uh, a democratic form of government uh, in Athens. And um, and so we see ochophobia appear there because if you have a very, if you have a highly authoritarian um, kind of a government uh, or or a social system, there is very little room for self questioning. Uh, but egalitarianism and democracy. Uh, an open intellectual space where people are not afraid to question and to self-criticize. Uh, that's the kind of space where ochophobia occurs. And because we have more of that in modern times than they did in ancient times, right? We have more egalitarianism, more democratization, at least a democracy in an egalitarian sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have more of that today, right, than, than in the ancient world. Um, because of that, we also have more ochophobia. And so for that reason, our um, the elitarian phenomenon of ochophobia has become non-elitarian as well. Mm. Uh, you can see, uh, you, and I talk a little bit about the book about the sort of this movement of ochophobia that it, with every new iteration of ochophobia in history, it becomes a little more diffuse. Rome is kind of an exception to that, actually. I also talk about why, but mm. essentially, if you look at the British Empire, ochophobes in the British Empire, you see that it starts to go a little bit into the middle and lower classes, not a lot, but a bit, whereas in ancient Athens, for example, it had really been a, an elitarian phenomenon, just the intellectuals had engaged in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now in modern times, right, in modern Western Europe and, and in present-day United States, because we're so extremely egalitarian uh, and so focused on uh, on equality, not just among ourselves, but between us and other nations, uh, for that reason, uh, ochophobia has become more diffuse. And so now you can meet people um, right and left. Well, not right and left in the in the political sense, but um, in the sense of everywhere you meet mm-hmm. people. Uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. I, I realize that could be misunderstood. What yes. I just said. That. Um, it's, it's still, of course, mostly a left wing phenomenon. Uh, but you meet people um, everywhere uh, who are not necessarily in academia, who uh, just are sort of regular people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went to public school and, and they learned certain things from their teachers and they just assume that, yes, of course, uh, Western civilization is uh, guilty of uh, great many crimes and and other civilizations have been brutalized by us and, and so on and so forth. So um, while it is still more of an elitarian phenomenon, and I talk a little bit in the book about uh, that it's, you know, you're likelier to find ochophobia in in a university town in Massachusetts than in a farming town in the middle of Kansas, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, um, we do see because of increased egalitarianism, because of increased 
democratization, uh, it has ceased to be a purely elitarian phenomenon. Um, so yeah, uh, the uh, the elitism of Okophobia is certainly there, but it's it, it has changed over time. Okay. Now a follow up question here. It was already clear that that Okophobia is put against xenophobia. Now, if Okophobia, even if it's a little bit less uh, elitarian, can one say it, it still is? Like you just said, it still it still has the elitarian aspects to it, but. If it is so for the elitarian aspect of ochrophobia, can then one say that xenophobia is an essential or was an essential part of the non-elite? Or can't um, one go that far? Yeah, um, I would maybe, I mean, to some extent, yes, I would maybe remove the word essential okay. there um, uh, because I don't think it has to be the case. Just like I would say that ochrophobia yeah, is not essential to the elite, right? You yeah, can yeah. certainly find the elite, of course, uh, that are not. Um, but um, but yes, uh, there's certainly the tendency once again uh, that uh, the non-elite would be more xenophobic, mm. um, and and in fact in the book I list um, I think it's at the end of chapter nine if I remember correctly I have a ten-point list where I actually say very specifically these are the historical reasons and the socio-philosophical reasons very concretely why uh, the elites tend to be the most xenophobic. And so the reverse of that is true, right? Because those 10 points that I give are lacking among the non-elite. They would tend to be more xenophobic. I get very specific about that. Uh, but there is certainly the tendency because they have less access to to fashions and ideas from abroad. And so they're less likely to be seduced by them. Uh, they live in a state of civilization, the non-elite, that is. They live mm -hmm. in a state of civilization uh, that tends to harken back to the earlier, more traditional ways of a civilization. They tend to live outside of the cities where where uh, where things, where mores and customs don't change as quickly as they do in the cities. Uh, so there are many different reasons um, for why they would be less ochophobic and even more xenophobic than the elite. Uh, there is, however, one, one uh, tendency which I do also discuss in the book, uh, which we also see uh, across civilizations in ancient and modern times, that the non-elite... Although you find it some, to some extent among the elite as well, but there is that tendency, especially among the non-elite, that they become so distraught with what happens to their own societies through orcophobia that they begin that they begin to hate their own civilizations hmm. for that reason in a reactionary way, right? Hmm. Um, and so it's not the same as regular orcophobia, right? But it does become a sort of self-hate hmm. uh, because they don't recognize anymore the civilization in which they live. Okay. Okay. Um, and so. Uh, and in fact, you even see this today to some extent, right? If to take a very, a very, very recent example, you have some people uh, in the United States who um, are so uh, disgusted by what is happening with the United States that they start hating the United States and they start loving the enemies of the United States or what some people at least would consider the enemies of the United States, such as Russia, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So now you have some people who. So that's what I call reactionary orcophobia. They mm -hmm. praise Vladimir Putin. They play, They praise Russia mm -hmm. uh, and they hate the United States because they think that Russia is more like what the United States used to be, uh, whereas the United States has become something else. And so there is there is that uh, element of reactionary orcophobia to keep in mind as well. Um, so those are all qualifications, basically, to your to. Um, to what you said, but but I think you're basically right in identifying that yes, they, the the non-elite does by and large tend to be more xenophobic, or at least non-orcophobic. Now, just something that it popped popped up, like if there's the elite and the non-elite, and 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 one is the more orcophobic, the other is the more xenophobic. Where are the virtuous people? <laughs> right. Yes, that's a good question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I look for them as well, just like Diogenes walk, walking around with a lamp in Asia, <laughs> looking for virtuous people. Okay. So um, it's this difficult, you think? 
Yes. Well, he was very obnoxious, as I say in the book. <laughs> uh, well, the the I think the virtuous people, um, not to be too self-aggrandizing here, but I hope that uh, we and the people listening uh, can uh, can create uh, something of a community of virtue anyway, in which we uh, because we actually approach and discuss these issues, even if we don't agree on everything. The mere fact that we're able to discuss them. I think is a virtuous thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, entering uh, a bit more into a technical issue, you say that your book is not a historical one, and indeed it is clearly a philosophical one. But history does play a fundamental role in it. Now, the historical process that stands at the center of the book is that of a cyclical repetition, or better, you claim that it, you say that it's an, a, a helical one, and I think that's quite interesting. Now, this, as you also clearly admit, should remind one of the tragic. A Greek vision of the world. Now, if I get it right, this seems to be an attempt and a desire to go beyond the contemporary, what we can call crypto-religious narrative of progress. And I could not agree with you more here. However, at times this, if I may call it a neo-Greek vision, seems rather bleak. It seems like a doomed cause and effect determinism. I think that history, even history that goes beyond and even against the superficial and simplistic narrative of progress, can be told in a less deterministic way. Now, first of all, am I portraying your historical narrative correctly of the uh, uh, cyclical repetition and then the helical one? And secondly, uh, maybe you like to comment on the uh, the telling history in a less deterministic way as well. I would agree that um, your description is uh, accurate. Uh, the only thing I'd say is that uh, I'm a little cautious about the word determinism or deterministic yeah. because a lot of people have the tendency of understanding that word in a very fatalistic way, sort of it doesn't matter what we do, just uh, people throw up their arms in the air and say, okay, well, Let's just hope for the best. Uh, everything will happen the same way anyway, regardless of what we do. So that's part of the reason why I wrote the epilogue to the book, to say that in spite of the seemingly deterministic view of history, um, it does in fact matter a lot what we do. And I explain uh, in the epilogue uh, philosophically, I think, why that's the case. Uh, but yeah, but but more or less, uh, uh, your description is correct. I would just issue that caveat uh, to anyone who listens. Um, but um, as for your um, your other point about a very bleak, uh, that it's a sort of a bleak view of, of history or of, or of, de of the development of ochophobia, um Yes, uh, I mean, uh, I, I would agree with that as well. Uh, and I guess this this is the case where I would say that, you know, we're not we're philosophers, of course, we're not politicians. And so it's not our job to say things that sound good or pleasant mm -hmm. um, to anyone who wishes to listen. And um and I think actually this is a this is a, a big problem. One always has the temp there's always the temptation to to deliver good news or you, and you see this with a lot of famous public intellectuals today. They sort of have their fan base and so they become beholden to their own fan base. Uh, you know, the, their fan base become like their voters, basically, and they that they have to say nice things. They flatter their listeners. They flatter their viewers and readers. Uh, and this is something we have to resist, I think, as philosophers. Um, I, there's a reason why why many societies have executed philosophers or banished them, right? <laughs> we're, we're often not popular because we don't... Uh, it's not our job to deliver good news because we're not politicians. So the fact that something is... That it sounds bleak, I, I don't think it's an argument against... I'm not saying... You, you're not saying that it is an argument against... No, 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 I'm, just, no, no, no. I'm just saying that I think we have to kind of resist that temptation. Um, the one thing... You know, it's, it's a sort of... Resist that politicization of our own work where yeah. we... 
because our, it is our job to say, to deliver the truth as, as to the best of our ability, hmm. at least as we see it. Hmm. Uh, the one thing I guess I could say on the more positive side, not that I want to now give in to this temptation, of course, but um, <laughs> uh, on a little more positive way is that you can tell a story of a society in many ways, right? And I make this point in chapter nine of the book where I talk about the fact that when I talk about orcophobia, I'm not talking about all of history. It's not a total mm. history, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm talking about orcophobia. Uh, and yes, I do have to say that when we look at history at the, uh, at the orcophobic, at, at the orcophobic element in the rise and fall of civilizations, that is a very bleak story. Mm. Uh, but I also say that there are other aspects in history, obviously beyond orcophobia, of course, many, many more aspects. And some of those aspects might yield a more positive story. Mm. Um, and uh, and the other books exist about some of those aspects, and I think those are also worth reading. Uh, so we can certainly find more uh, positive stories when we look at history. Uh, but yeah, but the story of orcophobia is a pretty bleak one, unfortunately. Hmm. Uh, and so I try to tell it uh, to the best of my ability. Yeah, no, and, and, and a bleak story can also be a, an alarm sign that people might actually... Uh, look up a bit and, and, and see that some some yeah. of these things that were happening in the past are present again and that if, if you continue up until a certain point that there, there is this thing called the slippery slope and once you're on it it's going to go downwards afterwards so. yes exactly i just published an article called on slippery slopes actually uh, the other day so it's funny okay. to mention. <laughs> okay. just plugging my own work i'm sorry that's, that's yeah, I'm, I'm ripping you off anyway yes. uh, to conclude uh, reading your book it, it becomes clear at times that the publication process of it was not very smooth in the introduction you also phrase your displeasure with this rather explicitly now i have to say that besides it being a sad confirmation of so many other experienced and confessed stories of betrayal of the core scope of academic publishing. This type of problems, however, touches me deeply. Now, I come from a different background than you, and, and more than once did I disagree with your book, as with all the other books that have passed the review here at Bookaholics. But that is exactly what I think a book should do, especially philosophical books. I should find points of disagreement, and I should feel uncomfortable at times. Anyway, do you want to say something more about the difficulties you encountered and maybe also then in the end about the positive fact that your book did see the light of day in the end? Uh, yes. So um, there's uh, much I could say here. I guess I'll have to hold myself back a little bit because uh, some uh, some things I could say would would involve other people whose uh, privacy should be protected. But basically, um, I can say that um, the Cornell University Press, was, uh, who, which published the book, was actually the second press that was uh, that brought the book to a peer review process. There was another academic publisher that had also accepted it for peer review. Mm -hmm. And uh, the peer reviews that I received back, they were anonymous, right? So I don't mm -hmm. know who they were written by. Uh, but the, the couple of peer reviews I received back from that earlier publisher were so... Um, were so brutal. Uh, it, it wasn't. Uh, and the thing is, and that's the thing, right? Um, uh, the the it's of course it's perfectly fine to disagree. Even mm -hmm. even the peer reviews for Cornell University Press, they had some points of disagreement uh, mm -hmm. that they, that they raised. Um, so disagreement, of course, is fine. Mm -hmm. uh, but that earlier round of peer reviews was uh, didn't actually even care to uh, discuss my actual arguments. Mm -hmm. I was basically just called um, a fascist, uh, not okay. with that, not that exact word, but you, re you read between the lines. That's basically what they were saying. Okay. 
Um, and so, of course, the that other academic publisher couldn't uh, couldn't carry the project forward. Um, and it's uh, there was no attempt at even philosophical argumentation. I was just uh, basically shut out. Um, and so that is one example. I mean, there, there are other examples as well. I mean, more generally, I mean, when you when you send a book like this to academic uh, to academic publishers, so many of them let you know right away that you're not welcome um, yeah. among them. And, and so uh, most of the time I'd sent it to a number of academic publishers and uh, most of them, um, you again, they don't say it explicitly also because they don't want it to be on the record why you're being rejected. But it's very clear you read between the lines. It's very clear that you don't need to you don't need to bother with yeah. with such things. So if they see the name Roger Scruton, right, who's a yeah, famous exactly. conservative, of yeah. course, yeah, they see that he coined the, the they see that he coined this term ochophobia right away they're not interested i'm i don't actually consider myself a conservative mm-hmm. um and there are many reasons for that but obviously there are certain elements in the book that mm-hmm. can be called conservative mm-hmm. and uh and so uh right away they will reject it so it took a long time uh to uh to uh, to really find people who were willing to um to support the project and again and I, to I, engage I with the help. argument maybe exactly to yeah. engage with the argument which in and of itself is is um shouldn't be um shouldn't be something unusual but unfortunately it has become very unusual yeah. um the uh, again like i said i mean uh, you and i as you said you disagree with certain things uh, in the book but we're sitting here and having a conversation yeah. about it yeah, uh, that's yeah. a very yeah, that's a very unusual thing now. But most it, it, most used to, it used to be the whole point of philosophy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nobody exactly. agrees with anybody. That's why you have all yeah, right, the different exactly. philosophers. Yeah. Exactly. No, you're. I I remember this. Uh, the philosophy department in Tübingen a few hundred years ago, right? They had one staircase up for the realists and one staircase <laughs> up for the nominalists, and they didn't talk to each other, right? So it's a typical philosophy thing. But yeah. we're supposed to be able to interact anyway. Exactly. Um, but um, but yeah. So um. Uh, and then again, there are also some more personal stories, uh, just about how people refused to uh, to engage with it and so on, and and uh, how it was not just rejected but but insulted in the process on a more personal level. So, okay. uh, so so there is all of that. But but on the positive side, again, um, as you say, uh, it did see the light of day in the end, uh, and so uh, and this gives gives me hope as well. Yeah. And I th- I hope that anyone who listens who feels frustrated with academia that it might give them a little bit of hope as well. Um, I found. Uh, uh, an acquisitions, uh, acquisitions editor at Cornell who is very open-minded mm. and, again, uh, did not necessarily agree with everything, yeah, yeah. but was open-minded enough mm. to to be interested in the argument and to engage with it yeah. and go through the editing process with me. And and Cornell, of course, it is a, it is a major university mm. press, um, and so it's um, so that was very uh, heartwarming, I have to say. Mm. Uh, and, of course, it's always it's always the the terrible the the um, it's always the big stories, the big negative stories that make all the headlines. Mm. Right. When a speaker gets uh, shut out or is, is disinvited or something like this, it's never the the positive stories. Mm. All hope is not lost uh, yes. for academia. No, uh, all hope still... is not lost. Exactly, mm. uh, there is room for uh, there is room for dissent and for uh, for conversations like this one. Okay, well, thank you so much for this conversation, Benedict. And and for all those who want to have a closer look at Benedict's book, it is called Western Self Contempt: Oikophobia in the Decline of Civilization, published by. Cornell University Press. Thanks again uh, for talking to me, Benedict. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. The pleasure has been mine. Thanks also to our listeners for having joined us once again here at Picked uh, at Bookaholics. And uh, you, dear listeners, if you like our volunteer work here at Picked, you can also consider supporting us by becoming an active member of our institution. For more information how to join Picked, please visit our website 
And if you wish to contribute to this series dedicated to books, maybe by proposing a recent book or even simply by recording your own episode of Bookaholics, please do get in touch. My name is Christoph van Houten. Thank you and goodbye.